it's things like that where we go, here are things people don't think about enough. Let's talk about this more. And all of this is even before we get to the true meat of, here's what cognitive science says about the best ways to study. I think that's important because yes, there are two or three big level things about how you can study optimally, how you can learn well. But I think it's so important with what John just said, which is it's the planning, it's the motivation, it's the goal setting that's really important. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hi, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. I do have a joke. Perfect. Since we're talking about studying today with our guests, you know, last night I got distracted while studying a, a book about abdominal pain in the library. In the Somebody classroom. ripped out the appendix. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Very good. Yeah. It wow. only goes downhill yeah. from here. It only goes downhill from here. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think what's scary is how many people are actually look, picking up books in the library. There's a lot of studying in the library, but, you know, yeah, not as many books being picked That's up. True. So That's true. Yeah. This is a record episode. I'm not even sure how to word it other than to say we've never had a guest come back three times until now. I actually had to send off an email to Brad and say, is it okay that we have the same guest three times? I mean, we and have- I said had only if it's Regan. Only three. <laughs> we started over three years ago. So I suppose, you know, it's fitting. We would have someone return that often. But this time we have a chance to welcome both Regan Garung. Dr. Regan Garung is professor of psychological science and associate vice provost and executive director for the Center for Teaching and Learning at Oregon State University. He's the winner of the American Psychological Foundation's Charles L. Brewer Distinguished Teaching of Psychology Award and the U.S. Professors of the Year for Wisconsin. Dr. Garung is a social psychologist whose work focuses on improving teaching and learning. He is past president of SciKai and the Society for Teaching of Psychology and has published over 120 articles in peer-reviewed journals and has co-authored or co-edited 15 books. Please join us in welcoming to the Digital to Learn podcast, Regan Garung, which welcome Regan again. I didn't even realize the honor. I feel even better. Yes, but this time he's here with a guest that is new to us, and we've had so much fun researching and looking into everything that you've done, Mr. John Dunlosky. Dr. John Dunlosky is professor and director of SOLE Center in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Kent State University. Dr. Dunlosky's research program has focused on understanding three interrelated components of self-regulated learning, the monitoring of learning, the control of study time, and the application of strategies during learning. These three components of learning fall under the rubric of metacognition, which concerns people's cognition or beliefs about their cognitions. By studying metacognition in students across the lifespan, a major goal of all facets of his research involves developing techniques to improve student learning and achievement across multiple domains. Please join us in welcoming to the Digital to Learn podcast, Dr. John Donlosky. Thanks for being here with us, John. I'm going to have a great time today, and I'm glad to start with my first one. Three more, and I'll overtake and pass Regan. So there you go. Forward there to you the go. Next conversations too. We'll get right on that. <laughs> <laughs> 
today we are going to start as we typically do on digital to learn with some fun get to know you type questions brad you want to kick us off sure what is the best or most unique gift you have ever received john wow. you want to start yeah first that's a great question just had so many wicked gifts over the years but <laughs> we'll go over something that's pragmatic when i was in a grad school my parents bought me a Fender Stratocaster that I still use today and gig wow. with. So it's something that I cherish. So it's just been a wonderful gift and a good Can you companion. A little bit for us today. You know, fortunately, I don't have a guitar in here, else I would show you how poorly I do shred. <laughs> so if you like slow shredding, I'm right there. Uh, I hear more potential for sound effects. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Regan? Yeah. So, you know, boy, gifts. Uh, there are a lot of fun ones. And I, I know this is only audio, but if it was visual, you could look all around me and there are some fun stuff, even in the background that are some fun gifts that I have. So one of my favorite, though, is when very early in the term, one term, three students came in to my office with a package. And I thought, wow, this is the first time that students in a class came in with a package. And I say during the class, I mean, you know, I think all of us have gotten gifts after the class, but the class wasn't even done. And they said, we have this for you. And I said, but A, the class isn't done. One of it goes downhill from here. You know, do you want to hang on to that till the end? Anyway, but, and what it was, was it, they had created their own artwork to illustrate a phrase that I use very often in class, which is show me the data. So, you know, very early in class, I talk about how with the moment you hear about a study and somebody says research shows or a friend says, hey, I heard that. I try to instill this, show me the data, look at the data. Is it significant? What's the sample size? All those kinds of things. And um, they came in. And for those of you on video, they came in with this little mug with the Oregon State orange colors and their own artwork that said, show me the data. And I just love the fact that it resonated with them so much. And they came in and yeah, you know, when I think gifts, Brad, and when you asked that question, that's the one that popped into my head. I would guess that the two of you are very popular among the students on your campus. And I'll add to that, and you're probably also both seen as demanding professors. You expect excellence from your students. Would those two things be true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, for the first thing, goodness knows what they think about us and versus tell us. So <laughs> at, least, uh, at least with respect to the numbers of students who seem to flock to my classes, yeah, I think I do a pretty good job. Demanding, I don't know, my... How I've approached demanding as an instructor has changed throughout my entire career. So I take a much more flexible model anymore. So I demand more of students who demand more of themselves. Uh. And for students who might be in my class, just taking it to get credit, but they don't feel like they need to excel in that class. I'm also mellow about that as well. I make sure it's challenging, but not everyone needs to get A's. Just everyone needs to perform at basically their own goal level. So like my demands change and have shifted quite a bit throughout my career. I like that. When I think about demanding, I think 
I really try to be fair and firm. So yes, approachable. And I think very often when we think about higher education, people mix up entertainment and education and think you can only be one or the other. But I don't think that's true. I mean, I think you can be approachable, you can be engaging, but you can also be firm. And I think that's fair. And I think that's what I know I strive for. Definitely have high standards, but I know, and I've spoken to John a lot about this. It's one thing having high standards, but it's another to make sure you put the supports in place to help students get there. And I think that's exactly what John was getting at is those students who really want to get there, who really want to reach, we are there to help them get there. Absolutely. That's wonderful. John started to talk about changes over the course of his career. And that's kind of what we're seeking in question two. That's We know we're going to talk about study myths a little bit today. What's one myth about teaching and learning that you bought into early in your career, but have since dispelled? Hmm. Great question. I can tell you there's one myth that I kind of bought into as a student that Mm -hmm. really undermined, not only undermined my success, but it just made me feel bad all the time. And it's (laughs) that I thought that if you're really learning and good at something, it should be easy and it should feel good and easy. Mm. And uh, I'm sorry, calculus never felt good and easy to me. I I struggled in lots of my classes and I felt like it was a reflection on my ability until I started to learn how to approach it differently and realize that struggling is part of it and that the key is to seek help from others and to learn how to do better and to kind of work through those struggles on your way to success. So, but quite frankly, especially in high school and early in my undergrad career, it was anxiety producing. I felt like I was always like behind everybody else, not realizing that other students were struggling as well. And it's just a myth. If anything that's easy to learn, it still could be worth learning, but it's probably something you're already pretty good at. So for any student out there who's thinking struggling is bad, struggling is part of it. Failure is part of the active ingredient for success, because for anything worth achieving, you're going to fail on the way. So I'm still failing with respect to being that shredder of a guitarist, but I keep trying, you know, I keep getting back, keep going through all my practice and drills with hopefully someday I'll get there. So that was a big myth that I've dispelled. Unfortunately, the reality is that learning is tough. Mm -hmm. The question is, we want learning to not only be, of course, tough, but also successful. Absolutely. And the killers, many students, it's not only tough, it's tough because they're using bad techniques so they're not only it's difficult, but they're really not learning a lot. And Regan and I want to change that. We want to tell students like, yeah, it's still going to be difficult. We're not serving up a magic pill here because there is none. But what we are doing is giving the students the tools that can help them overcome those frustrations toward meeting their own goals. And as you describe that, I'm guessing that many students look at their professors and think to themselves, What do they know? They've learned this stuff so easily. They've never had a hard lesson in their life. (laughs) Yeah. You know how many times I had to teach cognitive psychology until I understood it? And this is a teacher, right? So no, it's difficult. And quite frankly, my hearts are out to the students because when I was a young assistant professor and students would come to my office hours to say, I studied really, really hard and really, really long and I, yet I'm failing. Mm -hmm. And initially I thought, well, they must not be really studying that hard. Right. I was wrong. They were putting it all the time. They just weren't doing the right things. So how frustrating is that when you're a student who really wants to excel, but yet for no fault of your own, just because you weren't taught how to study, right? It's going to be 
harder than it really is. Yeah. And people are very seldom taught how to study. Mm-hmm. So that's why your book is so timely. <laughs> well, just speaking about timely, I just taught my last day of class yesterday. And right after class, I was talking to my teaching assistants and a few of the students. And they said, because I actually walk the walk and I talk about a lot of these study techniques and the best ways to do it, I spend large parts of my class talking about study techniques. And my students said, gosh, there should be a whole course on just this. And I said, well, at least there's a book, you know, uh, but, but no, I mean, I loved that. That's what came from the students. They said, we've never had classes where there's so much time spent on how to do it well. And I wish there was a course on it. And I think John and I really hope that this book by being written for students will help with that. I just want to talk about John really got close to what my big myth was that relates to these kind of things. And mine is even simpler, which was I spent so much time thinking that the best way to learn was read, read, and reread, right? And I think that's really something to watch for. So many students go, wait, I, I've read the book. I spent so much time reading. Well, that's one of the biggest things out there is that's not necessarily the best way to go. Yeah, you need to know what some content is, but really the deal is it's what you do with it, right? And I think this myth about it's not just reading and it's what you do with it nicely expands into what active learning is and, you know, is a lecture good or bad? You know, there are so many people who are down on, in quotes, the lecture, but you can have a very active lecture if you do it right, and those little things out there, it's the reflected life. And I think uh, higher education doesn't reflect on the art and craft and science of teaching enough. And once you do, you go, wait a minute, all these things that we thought were right were not necessarily the case. Awesome. The next question, the answer cannot be studying, okay? <laughs> that, that answer is, is off just the took table. their answers away. Yeah. Oh, anxiety. <laughs> uh, the next question is, this is actually true. Your universities have contacted us and let us break the news to you that you can design and teach a new course on any topic that you choose. So with studying off the table, what would that course be about? I, you know, for those of you who don't know me that well, I'm flying the Oregon State Orange right now, but for 20 years, I was in the Midwest. And I know before we started, I hassled all of you about being in the Midwest, but I, I love the Midwest. I had 20 wonderful years at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. But one of the reasons that I shifted and changed everything is because I had the opportunity to teach the course I really wanted to teach. So my answer to that is I would love to and have the opportunity to and will be teaching a course on the science of teaching and mm. learning. So notice studying's not in there, uh, the title per se, but really the science of teaching and learning. And that goes back to that myth I talked about, right? I mean, for all these years, doing research on teaching and learning, there's so much really neat research out there that needs to be in the hands of teachers. And I'm just so thrilled to get to design that course and teach the course. So yeah, that's my answer, the science of teaching and learning. Very good. Folks can't see, but there's a sign behind Regan that says brought to you by science. <laughs> that's what I've been looking at. That's right. OSU teaching brought to you by science. Yes. <laughs> So wouldn't a course like on the demise of the Green Bay Packers, wouldn't that be another course that maybe that's your second choice? 
Wow. Wow. Right. Wow. So you're, I see you're also looking at the cheese head feature behind me. That's the problem with having a video. Maybe I should just switch off my camera so you can't cut too deep. As a Cleveland yeah. Browns fan, I probably shouldn't have asked you that question. Well, <laughs> hey, you know, Brad, as a Cleveland Browns fan myself, it's so glad finally we have just as good a record as the Packers. I was hoping, though, <laughs> that it would be at the higher end of that uh, continuum and not where we're standing right now. So it will be by the end of the season. <laughs> Excellent. So back to teaching and learning. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I do have to say one of the really neat things that I remember about being in Green Bay is I got to speak to the Green Bay Packer rookies and talk about stress and coping. Wow. So Aww. I did get to be in Lambeau nice. Field in the special players only section where they watch film and speak to the rookies about stress and coping. And yeah, it was just great. So there you go. That's wonderful. That sounds like a class I want to teach. Didn't know that was a, <laughs> was a possibility. Hey, yeah. <laughs> What course would you pick, John? Well, you know, mine is going to spin off of Regan's, but in a very kind of strange way, because uh, we all care deeply about evidence-based education reform and education decisions. And to do evidence-based education reform, we need evidence. And I think there's a growing wave of really awesome research being conducted now within these halls, within classrooms, right? So you have a great idea on how to improve student achievement. You go and conduct uh, research, experiment in your own class, which leads to recommendations for improving education. Much of this research, all of it is just wonderful. It has the right heart, but sometimes it's not conducted well because of all of the difficulties mm. of conducting really well-controlled research in a classroom. What I've been doing for the last couple of years is developing a course that focuses on how to train scientists to do really well-developed, well-designed research within classrooms, understanding all the constraints that come with teaching. Mm. So it's not like you can always use the most highly controlled designs, but there are other ways to approach it where you can get really solid evidence so that as this really tsunami of research is coming out, conducted within real classrooms, which is what we want, which I think will provide the most convincing data that the things that Regan and I are proposing can help students will really show that they help students. I think as that tsunami increases, what we want to see is better and better research done in the classroom. And if it were up to me, I would teach an entire course to graduate students mm. on how they can start taking the work that they're doing in the laboratory and move it into the educational realm. And especially because many of the students that we graduate here at Kent State go on to work at SLACs and liberal arts colleges where their opportunity to do science is going to be in the classroom. So, you know, we want to keep developing better methods and better researchers. So that would be my dream course. I've taught a seminar like this before, had a major impact on the graduate students, but I'd like to develop into a full-blown course. Nice. Like that. Okay, Tiffany, it's time to get serious. <laughs> Well, there's a book that we keep alluding to. So it's time. It's time that we dive right in. Let's have one of you maybe paint how you were connected in the first place. Paint that picture of how you got connected and what led you then to collaborate on a book. All right. So the origin story, as it were, I mean, this is a fun one. So 
And I'm actually going to pick up on, on something John said about how he works with grad students and things like that. The reality is there are next to no institutions that do PhDs on teaching and learning. And another major reason I came to Oregon State is the Oregon State Psychology Department actually has a PhD in applied social cognition and specifically scholarship of teaching and learning. And I just love doing that. And they said, you know, would you like to come and be part of the program where that's part of the PhD? So that's exactly what, you know, John was getting at is training, you know, students to do that. It's very new. It's going on. John and I were both at the University of Washington in Seattle. John in, in the cognitive program, I in the social psych program. We literally did share the same hallway. And my introduction to John uh, really was this very serious looking grad student with a mullet. Okay, did I say that live? Okay, I didn't say it. Should we scratch that? No, it's true. Uh, it stuck out in me, you know? You can't see yeah. it, but it still has it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's God. It's God. But no, you know, here was this serious, energetic grad student who was bubbling with ideas, striding past my office all the time, and, you know, got to know John because we were in the same corridor actually knew some people who were in his lab. We had mutual friends and really got to hear more about what John was doing. I can still remember being so enthralled by acronyms like FOKs, you know, and the feeling of <laughs> the feeling of knowing. And and you know, to the young first year grad student, I'm like, man, these guys get to talk about FOKs all the time. And what is this stuff? And I think the the whole concept of the feeling of knowing and all those cognitive things that John and the lab were working on were just fascinating to me. Even though my whole area was, you know, social psychology and my grad school work was a lot of social support and relationships and things like that. But I think being in proximity, you know, I learned a lot about what was going on with John. And of course, John was already doing big, big things. And he went on to do even bigger things in the years since. And I went on to doing a lot of social psych research. There was a point, though, when I did start at the University of Wisconsin in Green Bay, where actually very much like what John said, where a lot of the research is in the classroom. I mean, I took my social personality background and I said, look, the classroom's a situation. And I'd like to predict learning in this situation with the personalities of the students. And so that started a 15-year plus journey of studying learning in the classroom and side by side while this was going on in another universe as it were john was doing all this great work from the cognitive angle a lot of it in the lab and then slowly moving into the classroom as well and that's one of the reasons i take my hat off to john is he's one of those cognitive scientists who doesn't just do lab work but also does translational work in the classroom and i do a lot more classroom work but with some work in the lab so there's that nice little balance there well we were both doing this for years and years and years and then i want to say four years ago I just thought it would be such a great idea for a book like this. And I had this vision for a book written directly to students because mm -hmm. I found myself talking to students about it in the class all the time. And I just saw it as a really wonderful opportunity to reconnect with John. And even though he's a super busy, super high-flying, publishing all of the countryside type of guy with, with some of the most cited works on learning and cognition, the, the Dunlowski et al. 2013, probably, you know, my go-to, there's not a conversation I have with teachers that I don't bring that up. And I thought, hey, wouldn't this be great where 
we can put these two things together. And it was one simple email and John was right on it. And I think it was a Midwestern Psych Association conference <laughs> in Chicago, where we just touched base at the bar and went over some ideas and it was a go. Yeah. And that's how we came to study like a champion. Awesome. John, did I mostly capture that? You, you, you yeah. got it right. So many great ideas come out of like meeting at a bar, right at a conference. So <laughs> yeah. yet again, it happens here. Wow. No, so it's really combining, I think, the strengths of both Regan and my own within this volume, which just made so much sense because even though we have lots of overlap in our own interest, we also bring very unique contributions to the table, which I think shines in this volume. So... I'm really psyched Regan reached out and had such a great time writing this volume. So let's get into the weeds. How can we help students study smarter, not harder? Well, you know, there's going to be many answers to that question, all of which we go over in the book. But I think one of the first steps towards studying smarter doesn't have to do with study. And it's going to be in preparation of study, right? In fact, a lot of our recommendations in this volume, believe it or not, have to do with students' other activities that help them transform themselves into a study champ. But one of the first things that I do and really stress when I talk to students is goal setting. So develop the goals that you want to achieve on a semester basis, on a month basis, on a week basis. Prioritize those goals and literally write down scripts on how much you value and why you value them, and then manage your time in a way that will help you achieve those goals. And at least if you manage your time well, you know when you're not achieving those goals so you can get back on track. So I think how to start studying like a champ really begins with time management, which beyond college, right, higher education, is one of the most important skills for just success in life. So I think this is kind of where we start the book. Like, you know, you have to begin with some basic tools so you can organize your life so you can take advantage of the best study habits. Do you kind of resonate with that, Regan? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm going to actually go back even just one more step. We really start with addressing head on the major myths that students have about learning. And I think not surprisingly, when John alluded to the fact that many people think learning is easy, I think that's one of the biggest ones that we tackle right off the bat. So I think, you know, Brad, to really answer that question, it's got to start with unlearning what you think you know about learning, right? So, I mean, people come to college thinking they know how to study, right? And so it's really important to go, look, here are some realities about how learning takes place. I think then it's setting the foundations, the planning, the goal setting, right? And I think it's getting really pragmatic. I mean, we everybody hears about time management, right? Any university 101 book says time management and students will roll their eyes. Oh yeah, time management. My parents have been telling me about that all the time. But I think in the context of, you got to get real and you got to get real in terms of going, look, if you've got five classes and they meet multiple times a week and you want some physical activity and you want some fun, how do you fit that all in? Right. And how do you fit that all in with the best ways to study? So if your sense of studying is I'm going to cram the night before the exam, well, you're going to plan in a very, very different way 
versus if you're planning with the ways that you should be tackling it. So we start with the myths. We then move on to let's lay the groundwork, right? How do you plan? How do you schedule? And then we also tackle there's even more before the actual studying. And that's something that we have a whole chapter on that. I love this part. John's done a lot of research on this. I've dabbled in it, but it's note-taking, right? I mean, good note-taking. Note-taking is not just a record what the instructor is saying. No, note-taking is a study technique in itself. You know, you're recording, you're reviewing, you're revising. And I think it's things like that where we go, here are things people don't think about enough. Let's talk about this more. And all of this is even before we get to the true meat of here's what cognitive science says about the best ways to study. I think that's important because yes, there are two or three big level things about how you can study optimally, how you can learn well. But I think it's so important with what John just said, which is it's the planning, it's the motivation, it's the goal setting that's really important. Well, we hate to stop the conversation short, but this isn't the last time that we'll hear from John and Regan. We'll be back next week with part two of this series with John and Regan. So join us on Digital to Learn. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.